1: So Scott, twenty six years in the military. Is that right? Twenty four. Twenty four, okay. Yeah. Well you should have just said yes, I'm just giving yeah. you an extra couple no, of no, years. No, no, because
2: or... you know, Marines will eat their own for uh, for <laughs> breakfast, man, and <laughs> anyone in the military will, you know, if they they'll call you on it. So yeah, I got gotta set the record straight okay. all the time.
1: So uh, you the twenty four. What uh, what you know what precipitated you joining, first of all?
2: Well, my career span, yeah, twenty-four years, both enlisted and commissioned. So okay, I, I'm going to stop.
1: How how far did you get on the enlisted? The enlisted. I was side? a corporal. Okay, all corporal. right.
2: So uh, I, uh, after a not so stellar high school career, uh, <laughs> poor grades, uh, racing a motorcycle, running from the cops, fighting, uh, you know, drinking beers underage. Uh, I was introduced to the Marine Corps, and, and you know, having led such a R- risky unsupervised childhood I, I you know these marine recruiters were like the biggest group of risk takers i'd ever met and i'm like these guys are a perfect fit for me i'll fit right in so I, I enlisted uh went to desert shield desert storm then found the error of my ways and the value of an education and then decided to go to college and uh stayed connected to the marines as a as a young machine gunner in, in the reserves and uh got my commission and then Several deployments later in over sixty different countries uh, you know I retired at twenty four years in uh, late uh, 2013
1: very cool yeah. very cool and my, my appreciation to your service oh, well thanks same yeah. to you thanks for your service uh, let, let's talk about some of the deployments not all of them were over in Iraq or in Af- Afghanistan things of that nature but all deployments have their own sets of problems what are some of the things that you think people should know about as far as deployments for the active duty well for for the families because that that's an important thing too is is, you know
2: for every one guy serving they leave behind three or four people the wives and the kids and and that's a challenge um but having seen so many deployments in so many different areas i you know i think i was very fortunate because it it helped me develop as a person and develop this unique understanding of multiple cultures and then how how the marines and how the military have to interact with that and you know I often get asked the question too like you said uh you know well why, why did i write this story about echo and Ramadi? Yeah. like why why this why this deployment and everybody has a point in their career that you say is you know a pinnacle of your career and to be in the marine corps and to be in the infantry uh, I, I, I equate it to being in the major leagues or being in the Super Bowl because mo- most listeners need to understand as well is that these Marines and soldiers and, 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 and all of our service members, they train for weeks and months and sometimes years on end. And they will never see a war. And the only analogy I use is that Super Bowl analogy. Imagine if you're in the NFL and you train, you're doing two-a-days every day all week and there's never a game on Sunday. It would be demoralizing, and and it is a little frustrating. So when my Marines from Echo Company, 2nd Battalion, 4th Marines, as we fought in Ramadi, which was the deadliest city at the time, it was game day, and they were winning every single day. And so that's why I decided to tell this story. And I think what's important is it's not just about the fighting. It's not just about the friction and all, all this relentless pressure that these young guys had thrust on them it's also about the families that
1: supported us and and i think that's an important important message that i like to share well i'm i'm glad that you're talking about that i mean i'm from little rock arkansas of course we got little rock air force base right there home of training the c-130 crews and the load and all the rest of them and they and at a moment's notice they're told they got to go somewhere yeah. and take care of something and my son-in-law uh, was a, a loadmaster, and one of the big things that he did was go to Afghanistan, and he was humping in the special yeah. forces people. And well, that, that's 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 kind of cool, and um, you know, I,
2: I I don't normally share stories from the book, but for that community back in back in it was Little Rock, Little Rock, yeah. Uh, okay, so for all you all, all you Air Force personnel back in Little Rock, I say I write an entire chapter about. The KC-130 community. And it's, it's just predicated off the fact that as a commander of an infantry unit, uh, doing the things that we did, when we, when we lose Marines on the battlefield and soldiers, whether to injury or they get killed in action, you know, I, I never really had an understanding of what happened to them where they went. There's no class you get on this. Yeah. And you just simply have blind faith in the system that when the are off the battlefield from the point of injury they're going to be taken care of. And everybody's seen movies like Taking Chance with, you know, uh, you know Kevin Bacon and how they're processed from That's Dover. A awesome movie, It, it the is. It, they did a great job with that. But at, at the time in Iraq I never really knew what happened and it wasn't until I did an interview with one of my KC-130 pilots uh-huh. that I really understood the process and the way those aviators, it is such a awesome responsibility to handle the remains of those fallen warriors, those angels that are leaving the battlefield to ensure their safe transport from the country that they died in to get them to that point, to fly them back to their final resting place. And I didn't know that. And that's something that even as Marines that think they know a lot, uh, I, I think that it's... By telling that story in Echo and Armadi, people get an understanding of really how dynamic it is. And there's, there's just so much uncertainty. And then it takes maybe 10 years and, and a lot of age and wisdom to understand, man, there's a lot of things even I didn't know at my level. So it's, it's, it's been very illuminating. And I'm very, very grateful to everybody that serves because I often hear this, oh, well, I was in the infantry. I just did this. I was just a mechanic. And I want to tell all the veterans out there, I I don't care if you turned a wrench on a truck or if you cooked soup in the chow hall or you were a nurse or you were a grunt kicking doors in like we were or a pilot. Your service matters, and you should be justifiably proud of everything you did, every single person, because you make up such a small percentage of the American people. No, you know, there's 300, 330 million people in this country. Mm-hmm. Less than one-half of 1% will ever serve in the military. It's just astounding that those type of people... These great families that breed these great Americans are willing to raise their hand and sacrifice. And and I just want to say thanks.
1: And it's amazing, you know, after World War II, how many former military people ran for Congress and things of that nature and understood, you know, kind of the military view and what they were putting guys into, the meat grinder they might be sending them to and stuff. We don't have that anymore. There's not that many veterans that are serving in Congress, and they don't have a freaking clue. No, no, there's not. And,
2: uh, you know, I'm really, really proud to know, at least uh, as, a, as a California resident now, um, you know, my home state was Illinois, but uh, now as a California resident, I, you know, I'm glad that I do know a couple of veterans, like, you know, representing. Duncan Hunter, yeah, uh, you know he's a Marine, yep. uh, and, se- and several others. That there are some out there, but I agree. I agree with you. Th- there's just not enough to really be at that political level to have an impact and understand the trickle down effect of what their political decisions are making. And you know, in Echo and Ramadi, when we talk about all the fighting and, and, the, and the chaos, is we weren't fighting policies or strategy back then. We were fighting the enemy. Our mission was to kill or capture anti-Iraqi forces, and that's what we did day in and day out, two, three, four, five times a day in direct contact with the enemy. And, you know, to have politicians, to have key leaders that have a true understanding. And I'm not saying everybody has to do that. I think you can have an understanding for the military without serving in it. If you're willing to connect to that group when you're making those decisions, Is spend time with those people that really understand the dynamics of it, that can temper your decisions and give you the best information to make those decisions
1: that will be meaningful to those who serve. Yeah, before you start making cuts that are having a direct impact on the man who's on the field. Absolutely. And they've they've made some boneheaded decisions over the last ten years. Because uh you know I didn't understand Carter because Carter was in the military himself and he still hollowed out the military. Obama terribly hollowed out the military and now we got President Trump and he's rebuilding the military and I'm I'm proud of what he's doing I I'm firmly behind him on that so talk a little bit about Ramadi when you got over there was it what you expected or was it far worse than what you expected it was it was a combination of
2: both. I think there's always the uncertainty of when you enter a new uh, a new arena. Um, you, you don't know what to expect. But I was very very fortunate to have about 50 veterans from the first Battle of Ramadi. No, four in my company, and they were you know these salty seasoned sergeants. And when I say that I I'm being you've you know a little sarcastic because they were 20 22 year old kids. Amazing. And they were performing these. Superhuman acts in the face of great danger and risk, uh, surrounded by great uncertainty every single day. And I could not be prouder. Just amazes me okay. how, how, how well they performed under those situations. And, uh, the, you know, they remarked that although they'd fought in 2004, Dave, that the city had gotten that much worse in Ramadi because we fought in 04. We took the city. It fell again. We went back in 06 because that's just where the insurgents wanted to fight us. Um, again, it was like this giant game of whack-a-mole. You know, we'd, we'd hammer them down in the Fallujahs. We'd hammer them down in Baghdad, and then they'd pop back up somewhere else. And in 06 and 07, when we fought, they chose Ramadi to make a stand, and they lost. And To, to, to compare it to historical examples, maybe it's the Tet Offensive of Vietnam where mm-hmm. you know, they, there, was, there was an uprising, and when we applied the surge strategy, our unit went to Ramadi to fight because that's where the the heaviest pocket of resistance was and I want anyone who fought in Ramadi to understand is we won we won that city yeah and you know I don't base that off a metric of success off you know how many how many bad guys we killed on the battlefield and there were plenty trust me we killed more of them than they did of us um we suffered a a a lot you know a, a lot of casualties but the Marines and the Army team that were over there, we, you know, we were putting the putting the, putting the pain on the insurgency, and they felt it day in and day out. But we won that city, and our mistake was we weren't good students of our history, because I don't think any of us needed a crystal ball to figure out. Look, if we didn't establish a firm presence in in some city of Iraq to to provide continual stability, to have this continuity of U.S. presence there, it was gonna fall again and by doing that we really punted it into the grand sands of life and we turned back our history uh dial to may of 2015 and isis rears its ugly head and what city do they take ramadi capital of alambar province and I don't think any of us are heartbroken. We, we don't sit around a minute and say like, oh, yeah, all that blood and sacrifice and sweat, it was for naught. You know, we fought and died and lost brothers and we gave the city back. We don't. You know why? Because when the Marines and soldiers fought in that city, they did their job. They were effective. And they do what Marines and soldiers do. They, they help people that can't help themselves. That's the true spirit of what Marines do. And they were helping 90% of a town that couldn't help itself. The, 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 the people of Ramadi, who we fought amongst, and we were helping them as they helped us target the insurgencies so they could bring peace and stability back to their country. And we made a difference. Even though we were there for just a small amount of time, several months, it, I, I say it was like a dent compared to what the Army was there. They were there eight months before we even arrived and stayed another ten months after that. But when I talk to those guys, they say, Scotty, yeah, whatever it was that the Marines brought to the fight, they, were, they did help, and they made a difference, and, and that's validated through my research and, and talking to my fellow
1: soldiers. Well, it's always known that the Marines are always on the tip of the spear. First in, usually last out. I mean, that's everybody in the military knows that. I would hope that the civilian population knows that. Although now I don't know if they know much of that at all. What were the what were the uh, ROEs over there for you guys? I mean, you're fighting people that don't wear uniforms. They look like everybody else. How difficult is that?
2: It's challenging, uh, especially for a young young warrior to understand the rules of engagement and not allow any misinterpretation of that as a commander and and to make sure that they know um, what they can and cannot do. Um, In Ramadi at the time, the rules of engagement were very, very permissive, meaning if they were out at night, they were a bad guy. If you're driving a car. They're a bad guy. If they have a cell phone in their hand,
1: they're a bad guy. The list goes on. They're pointing a gun at you. Were they a bad guy?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They're bad guys over that, there. That yeah. that
1: wasn't enough to make a decision to shoot.
2: We we never experienced that. If those guys were pointing guns, they you know they were definitely bad guys, and they, they needed killing. So uh, that happened. Um, and I don't say that to be cavalier. I, I say that because that's what happens in war. I mean, combat is not a natural event and and Marines have to make those decisions. And that's what we do to survive on the battlefield because there's nothing glamorous about war. Um, There's nothing glamorous about taking another human life. And it's a horrific life changing event for most. And um, the fact that they operated under those rules of engagement um, gave them a lot of um, security at times, but also when we transitioned to different parts of Iraq during that same deployment, the ROEs did change. And the analogy I like to use is, you know, it's easy for me as a commander to give a young young warrior a machine gun and a box of ammo and say, "Hey, you know, here's some training. Here's a target. I want you to go from zero to sixty and engage that target with le- lethality." They're going to do it. They can go from zero to sixty. But when you change the environments you change the atmospherics and you change the rules of engagement to get that same guy to go from 60 to zero in a more restrictive
1: environment, that's the real leadership challenge. Let me ask you the tough questions, okay, if that's all right with you. How difficult as a commander of a group of men? You're going to lose people. That's just the nature of what you were in. How did, were you the one that personally wrote letters home? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. How and, difficult and, and it, is it? Tell my listeners help them understand how tough that is.
2: Yeah, well, it's it's tough. I I mean it, I it's so tough and and, and a, a letter isn't ever good enough. I always called and I, you know, I I felt it was so important. He, I, that's the first chapter of Echo Nomad is okay. The experience I had to make a phone call to the mother of a uh, you know, twenty-two-year-old squalier that we lost, Corporal Dustin Libby, who was killed on December sixth. And it's horrible. It's horrible. Um, but you know, that's what they deserve. They don't deserve a letter. And, and it was, it was hard. But what's important too is in this, not only in the story but in life, is that I want the listeners to understand is that even though I'm making a phone call taking a brief break in combat during as we're fighting to call the mother of one of our trusted squad leaders and to hear the pain in her voice, it, it's remarkable As she told me, keep fighting and thank you. And she's thanking me. Like, where do these people come from, Dave? Like, they're extraordinary people. I always say that. There's no way to describe them as ordinary people to lose so much and... Still, continue to love
1: us so much. It's just, it's amazing. Well, if you it's know the, the the people involved, if you you know you got a son or you got a daughter that's over there, I think that the people typically to come out and, and put their hand up and and take the oath are people have been raised knowing how important that is, and the families don't want to see death visit their doorstep, but if no. they do, they know that. Their loved one has fought a valiant cause. They did, and and you know when when I called Jenny
2: Libby that night on uh, December sixth, uh, you know she said one thing too is that you know Dustin loved being a marine more than anything else. Yep, and that's, that's key. To, to this day, um, you know they continue to support us, and they carry this light that that shines so brightly for so many guys that you know are really struggling through some some darkness and. Um, it's, it's comforting to them because they're always there for us and you know when I published the book Echo and, and and we've had so many fabulous endorsements for it you know General Livingston, Medal of Honor, and Bing West and Dale Die, all the celebrities and Die, four star generals those endorsements are great but really the, be- the best one is from Chris Libby, Dustin's brother when he really eloquently stated that he never really understood that although you know he was hurting and he was dealing with his own pain that you know it was our pain too and that that was when when he sent that to me it was it was stabbing you know and <clears throat> and humbling as well because to this day you know Chris and I still maintain a friendship you know he may have lost his brother but um he gained, you know, 250 more, uh, so, <laughs> and he can't get rid of us. He can't shake us, so, okay, so we're always there for him so no you, matter what. Are you
1: good friends with Dale Dye?
2: Uh, again, Dale's, uh, uh, we're, we're friends, but we're, you know, it's, it's almost, we're pen pals. We, I've never met Dale personally, in person, but we we correspond. I, I, his wife, Julie, is a great supporter and, 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 and a great author as well, and, you know, Dale's a decorated Vietnam vet, yeah. and... Uh, He is another great example of not just staking his extensive, illustrious career on endorsing Echo and Ramadi, which he didn't have to. um, But uh, he wants to make sure that great military stories are told the right way through warriors inc and helping support military and veteran writers and uh, you know to dale if you're listening julia thank you again and to to everyone else that supported the book uh you know i'm I'm just extremely grateful because if it wasn't told the right way if if the story wasn't as impactful as i've been told and if it wasn't a bestseller uh the marines would have told me because we're, we're pretty tough on our own you know we we, yeah. we eat our own for breakfast as we were saying but uh it's it's very, it was very important to have
1: the respect and the the endorsements from the families that said hey you got it right well I served under Dale in 77 in Guam at Anderson Air Force Base so I I thought it was interesting you brought up Dale Dye's uh name I mean he's been instrumental in as you said making sure the real story is told about American fighting, and he's men. still
2: championing that cause. He's working on a on another project right now, and you know the, he's tireless. You know, guys like Dale and, and others that just continue to tell these great stories um, are just amazing. You know, all all of our fellow authors, you know. That invite me on. Guys like Jason Delgado, uh, you know, Robert Vera, Josh yeah. Mons, this whole network, Scott McEwen, all of these authors. We're, we're like this coalition forces of authors and storytellers and speakers that want to make sure that, you know, our stories are told and they don't fall into the shadows of, uh, the you know, the book clubs of the world that are they're just, you know, there's a place for, for fantasy and fiction. Uh, but these are real stories. These are real heroes. And... It's astounding to me that people will watch a two-hour news segment Dave, and be inundated with scandal and and tax reform and Nancy Pelosi bad-mouthing our government now. and people not respecting the presidency, but they'll, at the same time, go spend $60 at a movie theater and spend an hour and a half of their life watching a movie about war, and they're actors pretending to be heroes when we can't even carve out eight minutes of our mainstream media on any channel to highlight what they're doing. And they're fighting today as we sit here. They are guarding us in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, the Horn of Africa. They're out there doing it. And everybody needs to know that. And there needs to be more coverage. I'm not saying we have to dedicate an entire channel to the military, but we need to make sure that their sacrifice is noted daily and you can look back you remember when the war first started how it was such a feel-good thing like oh today's hero is this and they had these banners and these boards set up and they're doing a a soldier's profile and it was cool why isn't it cool today i think it's cool and i i love it when all these smaller nonprofits, all these smaller uh news organizations shows like yours that really highlight and give um guys like me an opportunity to you know tell that part, to remind Americans, to remind everybody in in Little Rock or elsewhere around the nation that,
1: man, they are out there and they're doing it. And again, I just want to say thank you. All right. I appreciate you stopping by and coming by and talking about your book, Echo and Ramadi, and uh, the months that you were there and the things that you saw, the heartbreak that you went through, but you won. That's that's the important story here. You we won. won. We did, yeah, absolutely. You yeah. did your job. Yeah. Well, it's my
2: pleasure being on the program. I, I'd love to come back and talk some more. Uh, I'm sure we could go on and on. I'll get this. you.
1: I'm going to get a a, a card for, from you, and I'll be calling you. Yeah. And we'll get you on the show. Absolutely. Some more. It's my, my pleasure being on the program. Same with me. Thank you very much.